Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology and society and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. So there are just a couple of things I want to mention before I get onto the show. Uh, firstly, the Chrome extension life tab that I've been working on is available. It is basically a digital productivity planner and data tracker that helps you keep on task and track things that you think are important to help you live a more informed life. The reason why I decided to make it is because there is not a single um, productivity planner or journal or you know diary, anything that I've ever stuck with. So I took the things that I liked about all the ones that I have used and I threw them together to make this uh, what is what is currently available is just a proof of concept. But it's I've actually stuck with it and I think that's because it pops up every time I open up a new tab. So instead of actually having to actively remember to find out what I need to do, instead when I hit, you know, command T, you know, control T to open up a new tab, this pops up saying, hey, dude, you've got some stuff to do. And it's re- it's actually made me more productive, but I am biased. So I invite you to go and check it out. You can do that at uh, just type in life tab into the Chrome extension store, or you could head to talk of today and um, there are links to it there. The version that is online currently is a proof of concept. Um, over the next few weeks and months, uh, we're going to be releasing updates that include crowd, uh, crowd cloud integration, um, a, the, there is a data tracking feature there. Uh, what's coming is the ability for you to enter fields, different or well, different types of data that you do want to track. So it could be, you know, your blood sugar or did you walk the dog, basically whatever you want, and then give you the ability to derive insights from that data over time and see it visualized. So some simple ones could be how does your coffee consumption uh, relates or uh, correlate with your with the amount of sleep that you get or how does your productivity or or you know number of tasks that you don't get 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 done a day how does that coincide or correlate with your meditation practice practice perhaps so this is in a way a uh, a productivity tool and a data tracking tool for biohackers so if that sounds like you or if you are just interested i invite you to check it out and your feedback is really, really welcomed and sought after. Because we're at the initial stages, anything that you say uh, or any feedback that you give could result in new features or, or whatever being being implemented. So the way to think about it is you could be creating or help create the productivity planner that you want to use. So I really, really, um, if, if, if you're really interested, please check it out and get in touch because... Well, I'm excited. Anyway, on to the show. The meaning of life is to live forever. At least, this is what Google's artificial intelligence chatbot responded with when asked the greatest existential question just a few years ago. Some may think of this as fundamentally wrong, violating some unwritten but implicit law of the universe. But isn't avoiding death the most natural thing in the world? We are the products of over a billion years of evolution, and at each step, our ancestors have been trying to avoid death and procreate. 
In our lives, the prospect of getting older and dying is seen to be an eventuality, and for good reasons. But there are some in the world who see the inevitable degradation of the body as just a biological engineering problem, and one that can be solved. My guest today, Aubrey de Grey, is one of these people. He's a British medical gerontologist, chief scientist and founder of the SENS Research Foundation, an institution focused on using regenerative medicines to repair damage underlying the diseases of aging. Aubrey has been on a crusade against aging for decades. In that time, we've made significant progress. So much so that Aubrey claims that the first person to live to a thousand is alive today. Some optimistic estimates state that we may solve this age-old problem by as early as 2030, with other estimates spanning a few decades. It's not a question of if, but when. And when it is indeed possible to forestall death seemingly indefinitely, what then? Will there be a moral imperative to make these technologies available to everyone on Earth? I think so. Though, to be honest, it seems a bit absurd to say that, in a world where we can't even guarantee everyone on Earth the basic conditions for life. These technologies will give us the freedom to explore the world and its beauty indefinitely, having the choice to embark upon the greatest adventure of all, death will be one that I think people will demand control over. The contentious issue of euthanasia may see resolution. These are just some of the moral quandaries we are likely to be faced as these technologies develop, and we need to be discussing them now. I've been following Aubrey's work for a number of years, and I was extremely excited to have him on the show. In our conversation, we talk about how he got involved in the industry, a bit of science involved, and what things will look like moving forward. And because right now you can't live forever and your time is precious, I will get onto the show. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Aubrey de Grey. My name is Dr. Aubrey de Grey and I'm the Chief Science Officer of Sense Research Foundation. We are a biomedical research charity based in Silicon Valley, California. And we are focused, of course, on doing something about aging. When I, when I say something, of course, I actually mean we're focused on developing medicines that will bring aging under truly comprehensive medical control. Um, in other words, the same kind of control that we have currently in the developed world over most infections. And we believe we can do this by a variety of different techniques that essentially involve the repair of the molecular and cellular damage that the body does to itself throughout life. A few of these techniques are well, well understood and worked on by other people already, but most of them are not, and that's why we exist. And how did you get involved in, uh, I'd say, anti-aging research? I got involved basically because in my uh, mid to late 20s, I made the horrifying discovery that most biologists were not very interested in aging. I had gone through my life blissfully unaware of this and thinking that uh, biologists in general understood, like me, that every that, that, that you know aging was by far the, uh, the, spe- the, the, the uh, biggest problem for humanity and that uh, they would therefore be working on uh, trying to do something about it. And when I discovered that that wasn't the case, I decided, well, I'd better switch fields. I was previously working in artificial intelligence research, also for humanitarian reasons, but this was clearly an even more important problem. 
I've heard you um, describe aging as the world's most important problem. And some may understand that uh, or understand the reasoning behind that uh, without much of an issue. But for those who don't, could you unpack it a little bit? Sure. I mean, to me, it's all about how much suffering something causes. You know, um, suffering is what we're supposed to do something about. I've, I've, I mean, I'm not just talking from like Holy Scripture or anything. I'm talking just like people just don't like to see each other suffer. And I don't like to see people suffer either. So um, I think that's what makes suffering the thing that we should be working as best we can to minimize. And aging causes far, far more suffering than anything else. It's the source of 90% of the ill health in the industrialized world, probably more than 70% at this point of the ill health in the world overall. Um, and of course, ill health is the major source of suffering. Now, if you ask anyone what they value most in their life, they'll probably say their health. In one of your TED Talks, you refer to a table or a chart with a, basically a list of diseases on there. And you highlight the necessity or why it's important to distinguish uh, between the, I think it was the ages relating to the diseases relating to aging and uh, the others. Do you mind expanding upon that? That's right. I think the, the, the classification that you're referring to is, I, I basically try to answer the question, um, what are the ways in which people can get sick? And I basically break it down into four t different types of um, sickness. There's infections, there's congenital diseases that we inherit, there are the chronic progressive diseases of old age, and there is aging itself. And this is not controversial, but what is controversial is the assertion that aging itself is actually pretty much indistinguishable from the diseases of old age, whereas, by contrast, the diseases of old age are nothing like infections. They cannot be cured in the same way that an infection can. And the misconception that is so prevalent in the world with regard to these similarities and dissimilarities has led to the misallocation of billions and billions of dollars of medical research funding and medical funding, and it continues to do so. And that's what the whole field of gerontology tries to correct. And in particular, the work that we do tries to correct it in a manner that will actually deliver, um, you know, therapies that really work in the foreseeable future. Just out of curiosity, how much uh, money does this, this, does the field of gerontology get uh, all around the world? And as a percent of the whole, as a percentage of the whole, how much is it? Well, I don't know the precise numbers for the whole world, but I have a reasonably accurate understanding of the numbers for the USA, and I think they are representative of pretty much all industrialized countries. In the USA, the main their main provider of um, funding for medical research is the National Institutes of Health, a branch of the government, of course. They provide something in the region of thirty to thirty-five billion dollars a year. About 3% of that goes to a component of the NIH called the National Institute on Aging. But unfortunately, only about 15% uh, of the money within that entity goes to research on the biology of aging, as opposed to, you know, social gerontology or geriatrics or whatever. Uh, and within that, could be spent. and within that, I'm not done, I'm afraid, and within that, <laughs> The overwhelming majority is spent on trying to understand aging better, but without any particular priority to anything translational, in other words, doing anything about aging. If you look at how much is actually spent 
on translational, or what you might call biomedical gerontology, it's probably no more than 10 or 15, 10 or 15 million dollars per year, which is, you know, pathetic. Yes, it's a drop in the ocean. That's nothing. Some people could blink and, you know, produce that sort of money. That's quite a shame. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you just, you, um, when, when talking about dealing with the issue of aging, you say that the way, the, the best way to, well, to solve this issue is to, to maintain the body, not to come in at the end and try and fix, uh, the issues of, you know, decades and decades of degradation, but to maintain the, the, the body as it is when it's, you know, fully functioning. And this, there are seven ways that this can happen. And you describe them as the seven deadly sins. Is that, is that right? Seven deadly things. That's right. Strategies yeah. for engineered negligible senescence, but you don't need to remember that part. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, basically the idea that we need to be more preventative is not new. That's the idea that really gave rise to the whole field of gerontology more than a century ago. The problem is that until I came along, gerontologists were taking that idea too far. They were saying that what we need to do is somehow clean up metabolism, you know, make, the, make our bodies create damage at a slower rate than they normally would. And the inspiration for this, of course, was the fact that we do see a lot of variation in the natural world in the rate at which different species create damage and actually the rate, the rate at which they age. However, it turns out that our metabolism is so insanely complicated that it's basically impossible to tweak it so as to slow the damage creation down. And so what I realized and what I've been promoting all this time and what is now um, increasingly um, acknowledged as a realistic approach is to kind of go halfway to there. In other words, not try to slow down the rate at which damage is created, but yet still to repair the damage before there's so much of it that you get sick. Yeah. Well, uh, and what what are these uh, seven deadly sins, or you know, the, the realities of this? Um, you don't have to go into too much detail, but if you could just give some examples of the processes. Yes, I can, I can do it pretty quickly. Of course, there are many, many, many different types of damage. What there are seven of is categories of damage, each of which can be addressed, can be repaired by some generic therapy. So one example is the loss of cells, cells just dying and not being automatically replaced by the division of other cells. And of course, the way to fix that is to put cells back. And that's what stem cell therapy is, um, to put to program cells in the laboratory in such a way that you can inject them into the body and they will divide and transform themselves into replacements for the cells that the body is not replacing on its own. Then there are other types of damage that involve molecular waste products accumulating. Um, and there we can introduce either, um, there are some, in some cases we can introduce um, tweaks to the immune system so that the immune system will break these things down. Sometimes we have to go a little bit more uh, creative and introduce new enzymes identified in other species, especially in bacteria, which have um, uh, degradation capacities that we, we don't naturally have at all. That kind of thing. Some people might say that, uh, you know, uh, we're playing God and that death is a necessary part of life. And I'd just like to hear your, your thoughts on this because I, I was reading Richard Dawkins's, you know, well-known book, The Selfish Gene, um, earlier on this year. And he says that the issues of aging are kind of genetic ba uh, baggage. They're not necessary. It's just that we've kind of accumulated them. And because we reproduce decades before, you know, uh, death due to aging occurs, the, you know, deleterious genes responsible for aging still propagate. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? 
That's absolutely correct. And indeed, it's generally understood. There is only a very small minority of biologists now who believe that aging exists for some kind of evolutionary purpose. Most people recognize that that evolution just hasn't taken the trouble to complete the job of eliminating aging. In other words, every organism, every living organism only lives as long as it does because of carrying around a great deal of inbuilt anti-aging machinery and the reason we age is because that anti-aging machinery is not 100% comprehensive so what sort of um what sort of progress are we making uh, at the moment what sort of uh or have any uh, leaps and bounds been made in this field uh, in the recent years oh yeah absolutely i mean um i think it's i mean we're now in a position where we can say that everything that needs to move forward is actually moving forward the um, only area that was really in good, in good shape when I came along and started to try to do this was stem cell therapy, which was widely understood to be something that had great medical applicability across the board, not just in aging. But the approaches that I put forward or that I kind of brought together um, for addressing the other types of damage that we accumulate during life um, were at a very much earlier stage in terms of their development and also in terms of their appreciation by the medical community, by well, the medical research community. So um, we were starting from a very early stage, and that's why we created Sense Research Foundation as a non-profit, actually, because you know these things were just far too early to be commercializable, to be investable. Um, however, at this point, that's not that, that's only that's only partly true now. Some of these things we have successfully brought forward to the point where we have been able to spin them out into startup companies and where they may be in clinical trials within a year or two. So, uh, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I, I remember hearing um, some news a year or two ago about um, Elizabeth Parrish at Bioviva. Um, did she successfully lengthen? Uh, well, did did they successfully lengthen her um, telomeres using some genetic engineering techniques or something of that? So nature? I know Liz quite well, but I haven't been in touch with her in the recent past, and I don't know for sure um, the details. I haven't seen the data that's been um, uh, generated from uh, the tests that have been done on her. Um, it's obviously, you know, something to pay attention to. Whether it's got much scientific. Um, value in itself you know being just one patient is is debatable but at the same time uh the you know the the championing of self-experimentation is something that i do very much approve of i think it's um it's a tradition that has existed a very long time and got a great deal of distinguished um history uh but it's um you know it really it really is a is a great way to uh to highlight and to raise the profile of this kind of work and so you know it's it it, we hope obviously that she's not doing anything that will be harmful and risky and some people say that it is but i think all in all what we uh, she's doing what she's doing a a good deal more good than harm with the work that she's doing Mm -hmm. and could you just explain um briefly what a telomere is and what is the hayflick limit and and all this all this sort of stuff Sure. So our DNA is packed into these chromosomes, which are molecules of um, uh, really long molecules of strings of these things called nucleotides. Um, And the strings obviously have ends like any string. Now, the ends actually are a problem because chromosomes break every so often, just spontaneously as a result of damage from this or that source. And the cell needs to stitch those chromosomes together again after they've broken. 
But that means, of course, that the machinery that stitches broken chromosomes together needs to be able to identify the end of the chromosome so that it doesn't join two chromosomes together that are perfectly intact. That, would cause, that, that causes a hell of a lot of problems. So at the end of the chromosomes, we have these special sequences that are treated very specially and are protected from being joined together. Those are the telomeres. Now, there's a problem, however, with um, with DNA, which is that when you copy it, when you make repli- when you replicate it, um, the machinery that replicates it is not able to replicate right to the end of the chromosome. So the chromosome gets a little bit shorter each time the cell divides. And if you make cells divide a lot, then the cumulative shortening that happens is so substantial that this special sequence, the telomere sequence, goes away. And of course, then, as I mentioned, chromosomes get accidentally joined together end to end and so on. Right. Now, um, of course, something's got to be done about this because cells have to divide in the body. Um, And sure enough, evolution has invented an enzyme called telomerase, which adds additional DNA of this special sequence um, on the end of the chromosomes to compensate for the shortening that happens during cell division. But that enzyme telomerase is only synthesized, it's only expressed, as biologists call it, um, in a small number of cells and at a small, at a very low level. And the reason for that is because the lack of expression of telomerase is a fantastic defense against cancer. It means that if a cell gets into a state where it wants to divide and divide and divide, even though it shouldn't, eventually it'll stop dividing just because of this shortening of the telomeres. Um, Works really well. It doesn't work perfectly, of course, or if it did, we wouldn't die of cancer, but it works very well. Um, So the problem is, of course, that this this means there's a trade-off. Some of the cells in the body do need to divide a reasonable amount, and they don't express any telomerase. Uh, or only express very trace amounts. And so the telomeres do get slowly shorted during life. And in some cases, it may be that that process causes problems of its own as a kind of trade-off against the problem of, the problem of cancer. Can you talk a little bit about uh, senescence and uh, senescent cells? Sure. So um, actually, senescence was the um, term that Leonard Hayflick, the person who discovered this problem of a finite cell division capacity that I just described, that was the name that he gave to this phenomenon. Um, and it was a bit of a misnomer, to be honest, because it implies that it's got something to do with aging in the uh, in living organism. And as I said, there may be certain situations in which this phenomenon does have to do with aging in a living organism, but Len certainly didn't show that. Because what he did was he took cells um, out of the body that don't normally divide very much, and therefore they can perfectly well get away without expressing any of this enzyme telomerase. The thing is that even though they don't normally divide very much, if you do the right thing to them, you can make them divide like crazy forever and ever until they can't anymore. And that was what he discovered. But it wasn't a physiological phenomenon because the the type of cell he was using doesn't normally need to divide much. Um, All right. But however, it turns out that senescent cells do actually occur in the body in a different way they can actually occur as a result of other types of DNA damage that are not done necessarily as a result of the shortening of the ends of the chromosomes. Um, And the reason we call those by the same name is because they have the same kind of behavior. They express the same proteins, they get into the same kind of weird state, and it turns out that those cells are quite bad for us, or at least people have good evidence that they probably are bad for us. These cells 
are capable of secreting nasty proteins that are, uh, are, are the, that will promote the carcinogenicity of cells nearby. And so these cells are a problem, and we need to get rid of them. Now, it turns out that the immune system does get rid of them reasonably well, but it doesn't get rid of them perfectly. A few of them carry on and accumulate during life. And actually, one of the projects that we've recently initiated is looking at trying to improve and enhance the ability of the immune system to eliminate these cells better than it naturally does. I think I saw uh, something earlier on last year. Uh, a team genetically engineered some uh, some mice so that when some of their cells were, went senescent, um, some sort of marker was produced, and that caused um, you know basically like the cleanup crew to come in and get rid of them before they could cause too much damage to the cells uh, around them. Does that does that ring any bells? Or does, does that oh, yeah. sound about right to you? And I Very think it increased much. the life expectancy of these of these mice by twenty percent, which is um, substantial. It was, okay. So it's a little bit more complicated than that. So the initial work that you're referring to was actually done now six years ago uh, at the Mayo Clinic in um, in in Rochester, Minnesota, and um, the basically the work was to first create mice that made senescent cells at a very rapid rate, um, much more rapidly than any other aspect of their aging. So they lived an unusually short lifespan as a result of uh, this very accelerated accumulation of these cells. And they engineered these mice so that not only did they make these cells very rapidly, but also they could be given a drug that would do exactly what you said. They would get rid of these cells. And that um, was very interesting. It alleviated the accelerated aging phenotypes that the mice had. So everyone got very excited and co a company was formed and it got lots of money and it's moving forward quite well. They now have data that show that the same kind of thing does indeed, as you say, um, has, have beneficial effects less dramatic but still beneficial effects in normal mice there's still a lot of work to do to know whether this is going to have much effect in in the clinic but obviously that's the direction that they're going in okay well thank you for clearing that up it's still exciting uh, nonetheless um so you speak of the longevity escape velocity do you mind uh just explaining what what that is Sure. Um, so we are, as I have explained, talking here about therapies that will, in the foreseeable future, repair a variety of different types of damage that the body progressively does to itself. Now, if you think what that means, it means that the um, therapies can be applied repeatedly and they can, in principle, keep the amount of damage that the body is carrying around down to a very tolerable level, um, uh, you know, indefinitely. There's one problem with that, which is that the therapies, we don't expect the therapies that repair damage to be perfect out of the gate. We expect that uh, just as aging exists as kind of the gaps in our natural evolved anti-aging machinery. Similarly, when we plug some of those gaps, we won't plug all the gaps 100% perfectly at first. So um, what will happen is that, as a result, the, uh, initially the damage will be will accumulate more slowly, but the types of damage that accumulate will be more difficult to repair than the ones that we initially succeed in fixing. And that means that we need to improve the therapies eventually. So the term longevity escape velocity is what I coined to refer to the rate at which we need to carry on 
improving these rejuvenation therapies following the point where we get kind of version 1.0 going in maybe 20 or 25 years from now. Um, the good news is that that's going to be well within what we can do. It, it, if you do any kind of arithmetic on this, it seems likely that, it seems basically certain that the rate at which we will need to carry on improving the therapies will be a tiny fraction of the rate at which technologies normally improve. Okay. So I've... Uh some people have uh, well, they, people make predictions about this sort of stuff all the time, and I've heard Ray Kurzweil's prediction saying that by 2029 we will have solved the issue of aging. And I think you, you've said that the first person to live to a thousand uh, is alive today. Um, do you stand by uh, these these predict, or do you stand by Ray Kurzweil's prediction, or do, do you truly believe that the first person to live to a thousand uh, could be alive today? I certainly do. Yes, Ray is probably slightly more optimistic than me in terms of time frames, but only slightly. Essentially, I think that if we can um, achieve this first generation of rejuvenation therapies within the next um, 20 or so years, which I think we have a 50% chance or so of doing, just so long as the work is reasonably well funded, um, then we're done, basically. We will achieve and maintain longevity escape velocity. And that means that however old someone gets, they will never exhibit the ill health of old age in any way. And that, that means, therefore, that they won't exhibit the mortality rate associated with old age. So if we look at how often people die when they're young, we can just do the arithmetic. We can say, well, OK, how now, supposing someone reaches their 26th birthday, um, you know, what is their probability of not reaching their 27th birthday in a typical Western country today? And the answer is less than one in a thousand. So you can do the arithmetic. People who are going to benefit from longevity escape velocity will, as things stand, on average, live that kind of distance of course on, only on average some people will get hit by trucks you know maybe the earth will get hit by an asteroid anything could happen but mm. that's the logic yeah well it's um having looked at your work over the past few years i actually view the world and i'm living my life in such a way that i think that i will live that long and it's actually it's guiding the decisions that i make uh so i just i thought i'd i thought i'd let you know because i think there are a lot of people out there who are thinking along the same lines uh, it's quite exciting. It's it's a very exciting prospect, and um, you know, to the the, the people who, I, I guess the we we have the freedom to want to live for as long as we, we should have the freedom to live for as long as we want, and then you know have the freedom to to call it quits and say you know what it's time for the uh, the ultimate adventure. But I think delivering that freedom to individuals is a is a powerful and a very positive thing. So you're, you're working on some some incredible stuff. Well, thank you very much for that. Emotion. I agree. Um, so I guess we'll we'll just uh, wrap up uh, very shortly. Uh, I was wondering if you had uh, any requests from the audience, or if you'd like to uh, mention a few things um, b before we close up. Yeah. Sure. So, um, well, the first thing I'd like to mention, of course, is that the amount of information we've been able to cover today is just a tiny fraction of what we have on our website. Um, please go to sense.org and have a look at what we do and um, and uh, keep uh, sign up to our newsletter so that you can keep up to date. That's the kind of thing that we like to happen. So we have a nice, big, friendly donate button on the front page, and we'd love to um, receive. <laughs> There's no shame in that. There's that no shame in that. Especially considering that's how what, little you're getting from all the, uh, all the right. governments. Uh, and um, for those people who are interested in investing in companies rather than donating to charities, 
or perhaps doing both. Um, obviously, there are lots of opportunities I mentioned earlier on that we've spun out a number of our projects into startup companies. That's continuing to happen. So uh, you can always write to us and ask more about that. There's a contact form, of course, on the website. Okay, just one more question. Uh, is there anything that's happened in the recent, you know, the past few months that uh, you're just extremely excited about? It could be a development. It could be completely unrelated to aging. Uh, but what's been exciting you recently? Um, um, well, I mean, I, I, I'm constantly excited about what's going on in our work because, of course, I'm at the coal face of it. I am, I, I'm, I'm the chief science officer of the foundation, and so I'm always immersed in the details of each of the projects and so things will excite me because i see them i know that they are substantial steps forward even though it would take me half an hour to explain why they're important um uh, but yeah i mean basically i think i think to summarize uh the thing that excites me most about the past year's progress is that both of the um areas of aging research that uh, of our research that were really failing to move forward have finally started to move forward in a very big way um uh, that was first of all mitochondrial mutations basically figuring out a way to sidestep uh, um uh, uh, what goes on there by putting backup copies of the um mitochondrial dna into the nucleus an idea that actually originated in australia more than 30 years ago um and secondly the elimination of uh, molecular crosslinks in the body that um, reduce the elasticity of tissues like the major arteries and cause things like hypertension. Both of those areas were really stagnant for a long, long time, and we've really been able to break through those barriers. That's great news. That's great news. Well, uh, Aubrey, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, everything, all the links, uh, and do you mind if I link to you know your Twitter page and? Uh, sends and all that of course in the in the show notes i'll be delighted thank you all righty <laughs> my pleasure and thank you very much for being on the show thank you for having me hey guys i hope you enjoyed the show what a topic i mean it's all well and good talking about normal well when i say normal scientific developments i mean they're all pretty exciting but nothing quite has the the gravitas of well, the idea of living forever or whatever that ever, whatever that even means. I mean, even an extra 100 years would be kind of redonkulous. I mean, think about how much we've experienced, how much progress we've experienced within the past decade alone. What's the future going to look like? We're at a point now where we can take our evolution into our own hands. And by, I mean that in a biological sense and in a, and from a societal standpoint. So what's the future going to look like? Are we going to split off into different species when we go when when we become uh, a spacefaring uh, people? Or who knows what's going to be right? What's going to be wrong? Are we in need of a a global ethics committee? Perhaps I don't know. All I know is that there are a number of issues, <clears throat> many of which are deeply morally and ethically just bizarre things that we never have really needed to contend with. And, and these are issues that we're going to be dealing with within a lifetime, whatever that even means now. So I don't really have any, uh, any resolutions for you, but just some questions. Uh, it's an interesting time.
it's an interesting time. So if you've enjoyed this episode and you've, or you've, if you've enjoyed other episodes, please consider um, supporting the, co- the podcast, the podcast. What a fishy thing to say. Uh, you can do that at talkoftoday.com slash support. I'm now accepting donations through uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, or you can support through Patreon. Uh, you can also support the podcast by sharing this on social media or just talking about it with your friends. Uh, and any feedback is welcomed. Um, if you like what's going on, but you think, you know, the, the intro music lasts for too long or not long enough, or you think I just need to shut up and let the people speak, whatever, whatever feedback you've got, just let me know. I'd love to hear it. Um, also, I was going to say something, whatever that something is, we will never find out. Um, yeah, and if you want to get in touch or just ask any questions or if you have some ideas for future podcast episodes, things you might want to find out, people you think I should speak to, um, please just reach out and say hello. You can do that at talkoftoday.com through the contact form or you can just send me an email at sam at talkoftoday. Um, I'm on Twitter at Sam H Barton, I think, or Instagram at SH Barton. So reach out to me through any of those uh, channels and I would ha- I will happily have a chat to you about feedback or what you want from the podcast or even just to have a good old discussion about the future. So anyway, on that note, I think I will bid you farewell. Have a great morning, afternoon, drive, lunch, dinner. I hope if you're doing the laundry, if you're doing anything, enjoy it. And until next time.